In this podcast, I speak with David Laser, multi-award winning journalist and author of Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing. We speak in the context of Australia's current cultural reckoning in wake of the Brittany Higgins allegations, those brought against the Attorney General, and the stories of sexual violence and disrespect coming out of Australian schools. We consider several questions. Why and how should men step up? What are the causes of toxic masculinity? And how do we benefit from addressing them? And what is the relationship between the problem in our schools and parliament? Hey, everyone. So welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast, Episode 6. My guest today is David Laser. Uh, he's here at a really apt time because Australia is going through a cultural reckoning in our schools, in our parliaments, and really all over. And that is that we're considering, once again, what the relationship between men and women is in our society and how we face up to and take responsibility for action against very serious things like sexual violence and sexual assault. So David Laser is an award-winning journalist, a multi-award winning journalist. He's known very well for his feature writing and he's worked across the world in the Middle East and in Washington, DC. He's the author of seven books. And the reason that I'm particularly speaking to him today is that he released this amazing book in 2019 called Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing. This is it here. And I really recommend that you all check it out after the podcast. But basically, this book does something very unusual. It is a man stepping up to think and reflect on the Me Too movement, which really kicked into gear around 2018. And David, in this book, interrogates the ideal of masculinity, interrogates his own journey with it, his own experience, and really sits down and listens. And as Jane Caro said of this book, at last, a man has listened and understood. So David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and speaking with me today. It's a pleasure, Jack. Thanks for having me. So, David, maybe if you can just begin with the context here, because your book begins with a conversation you shared with one of your daughters. Um, and in that conversation, you questioned whether, I quote, a man blessed by all the favours a good life confers, close quote, is qualified to write about the Me Too movement and sexual violence. Why did you write this book and what gave you the courage to venture where very few other men dared? Well, the first thing to say is that I'm a journalist. And in late 2017, arguably the biggest story in the world, apart from climate change, which is an ongoing huge story, of course, was the birth of the Me Too movement. And from that moment that Harvey Weinstein was exposed in the New Yorker magazine and the New York Times, there was a flood, there was an absolute avalanche of, mm. of women, began with the Not OK movement, which morphed into the Me Too movement, with millions of women expressing their, their hurt, their violation, um, their assault, their silencing, uh, the fact that, you know, you were groped when you were little, so was I. You were raped as a young girl, me too. And so there was this outpouring of rage and anguish from women initially in America, but then it tripped the wire onto the continent and to the UK and then it spread and it morphed and it became something new in each country, including ours. So as a journalist, it, it was quite clearly a story. Mm. Um, but then, of course, the second bit was the real challenge. Could a man, should a man, 
write about this story because it's obviously a women's movement. Mm. It's women expressing everything that has happened to them. And I didn't know whether I could or should do this story. Um, but I also felt then, and I feel even more strongly now, that given that men are the perpetrators of most of the violence, that it was up to men to actually address this issue. Mm. What is it in us? What is it in our training and our socialization, our acculturation that makes some men want to do this to the women that they purport to love or to complete strangers? Where does this come from? And women have been shouldering this burden for centuries. This has been the norm across cultures and continents for centuries. And because of technology, because of the amplification of women's voices, we're starting to hear what has always been the case. And I just felt that if, if there was a role to play mm. in this as a man, to shine a light on this as a man, to try and take responsibility as a man, that would be a good thing. Yeah. Now, the devil is in the detail. How do you do it? <laughs> How do you do it in a way that is both sensitive and respectful and productive? And so did you, it sounds like that from entering into writing the book. I think you wrote this fairly quickly, didn't you? Well, I wrote, this book began as a, a cover story for the Good Weekend magazine. Yeah. And that came out in uh, early 2018. Mm. And the book then came out 18 months later in 2018. Okay, right, which is super fast. So I guess when you go into writing the book, do you already have a sense of what the model of male involvement in this work is? Or do you work it out as you're writing the book? Does it emerge out of that self-exploration? Well, part of this is conscious and part of it is unconscious. Yeah. Because, you know, I've spent a good deal of my life pondering the questions of, um, I mean, you know, men and women and mm. loving girls growing up mm -hmm. and wanting to talk to girls and wanting to be with girls and mm. but also being deeply interested in my male friendships and how it is that, that men talk to each other or don't talk to each other and mm. the role of fathers and mm. whether the father is present in mm. one's life or whether he's gone missing in action or whether he was never there mm. and what that does to children, boys and girls, but particularly boys because um, if the father's not there, then there's no way unless he has a, a wonderful grandfather or uncle or male family friends, there's no way of internalising what it actually means to be a man. There's yeah. no role model. And so I've been interested in that for many years. I was in men's groups when I was, you know, from the time I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Mm. Um, and the idea of that was for men, a bunch of us, to come together and talk to each other 
not about sport, not about politics, <laughs> not about work, but about, you know, the murmurings of our hearts and what was going on in our personal lives. And, and we weren't necessarily trained to do that. We weren't mm. socialised into doing that kind of thing too easily. Yeah. So that was all there in, in my kind of consciousness, if you like. And then, of course, there's the, um, or my unconsciousness. And, and then there's the kind of conscious crafting of how you put a book like this together. Yeah. Something as vast as this. I mean, it, it was just, there were moments where I just thought, I must be completely stark raving mad to try and write a book about the most contentious issue arguably in the world where mm. everybody who's ever had a relationship has mm. got a legitimate view about what this moment in time means. So kind of who am I to try and write about this? So there was that mm. kind of, you know, uh, quaking and trembling at the, base, at the base camp of Mount Everest before I began to climb. <laughs> Uh, but then on the way I was thinking well, I was gathering ideas and themes. So mm. when did the patriarchy start? Did it have a beginning? And if it had a beginning, might it have an end? And mm. how does misogyny express itself? And how do hatred and desire cohabit? You know, that became a big thing in yeah. my mind. And why is it that men turn on those they love and what happens to a man when he doesn't feel like he's in control mm. and how does that come about that he can't sit with not knowing or not being in control what does it do to his sense of manhood and and how do we as men imagine the lived experience mm. of women can we imagine mm. the lived experience of women so all of these themes began to emerge and, and what was happening in Australia and was it different to what was happening in America? Yes, it, it was and it is, but, but even more different again to what happens in Saudi Arabia or in India or, mm. you know, throughout Africa and, and the Northern European countries versus the Southern European countries. So yeah, I just kind of made a map as I went. And, and yeah, I mean, for readers who will check out the book, hopefully it's, um, it's amazing how it ranges, not just thematically, but geographically, right? So there are reflections on India, there are reflections on America, on Australia. Um, but what you find is that there are common threads. And I think that's something that really stuck um, with me after reading the book. I want to just take a few steps back to think about the relationship between hatred and desire, as you know, you have a chapter dedicated in the book to that desire and hatred. And uh, there's this incredible quote that you um that you reference from jack holland i think in the book misogyny the world's oldest prejudice and in that he basically says that misogyny is a form of hatred that has at its heart a tension between men desiring women and wanting to be in healthy relationship with them and then wanting to control at the same same time and it's that kind of conflicted impulse that creates the toxicity um i wonder if you could just unpack that for me i know it's such a deep and this, you know, dark question, but what is the relationship between hatred and desire, do you think? Because we're talking about sexual violence in our schools, 
in our parliament. And I mean, sexual violence is sexual violence, right? So why, what is that relationship? How do we start to think about it? Well, I think it might be helpful to start thinking mm. about it as an old story, as a very, very old story. Mm. And I think that, I mean, one of the, one of the sections of my book deals with a time in history when women had, in different cultures and different societies, when women had much more sovereign rights mm. or when women had multiple partners. You know, there are tribes where women, you know, they didn't know where paternity came from. That's a recent, you know, historically, it's a fairly recent phenomenon that, uh, from about 1500 BC, mm. we came to see that a man actually had something to do with paternity. Um, children were born because women were impregnated by the, the moon or the, the river. Mm. It was that animist kind of culture before the arrival of the patriarchal religions. And throughout Europe, for example, prior to 2500 BC, there were no gods worshipped in Europe. It was the mother goddess. It was the, it was the um, mother creator. You know, in the Hindu traditions, it was Gaia. It was the creator of the universe. And people worshipped the feminine. And that, that idea of the divine being feminine mm. uh, translates and translated throughout many societies into how women were seen before the law, their political and legal and sexual rights. So historically then, as the, as the goddess began to be replaced by the god, by a god, the gods, a male idea of the creator, then women's rights began to slowly erode. It wasn't overnight. It was, this yeah. is over, you know, over a great period of time, over a thousand, two thousand years. And you have, for example, the Hebrew invasion of Canaan, now Israel, prior to the Hebrews arriving with their idea of a male mm. god. Mm. Everybody worshipped feminine deities. And, but then you have the Old Testament and you have in various passages of the Bible, we, we can you know, open it at Genesis that, a, that a, a woman comes from a man, that a man shall have complete control over uh, his wife, that um, in Deuteronomy that a woman who is found not to be a virgin on her wedding night shall be dragged to the door, doorsteps of her father's home where she shall be stoned to death, that a woman shall be impure if she's bleeding and that anything she touches shall be rendered unclean, um, that the value of a girl between the age of zero and, and five years old is three shekels, but a boy is five shekels, you know, and that, that as I write, was the, that's the original pay gap right there. Yeah. And so 
And then you have that being um, superseded by, well, side by side with that is the, the rise of Christianity and Christian theologians and, uh, and them starting to liken, you know, Tertullian, one of the great Christian theologians of history, likening a vagina to a, he called it a temple over a sewer. Mm. Um, and the Archbishop of Constantinople calling uh, women neither firm nor stable, but beasts. And you get this um, inexorable rise of, of the devaluing of women. And, of course, mm. you know, look at the Virgin Mary. I mean, there's this great schism in the in the Christian, Judeo-Christian, well, really Christian kind of narrative, you know, the, the most important woman in the, in, in the entire Christian pantheon is a virgin who never executed her rights, sexual rights, in, in the way that any human being should be able to do. Mm-hmm. And so women were cast as obviously the Mado- you, were the Ma- you were the Madonna or you were the whore. And that idea of, of we see it today, we hear it in schools today, she's, she's a slut, she's a bitch, she's a hoe, she's a whore, she's a skank, all of the horrific words that are used to describe a woman who might exercise her sexual agency in the same way that the guy does who happens to be a legend or a top dog if he does the same thing. That goes back a long, long, long time. So you've got the historical antecedents Mm. for this and then, of course, Islam and codifying in in the Quran and the Sharia laws, you know, that a woman's testimony is, is... is worth um, half that of a man's, and um, and we've got to be careful with Islam because what we often think is Islamic or Muslim is actually cultural, and it's p- particular to certain cultures. Mm. And Islam is coming over the top of them, so I want to be careful about about that. Um, so then you get into the area of control. If you've been yeah. taught all of your life, or if, if in the scriptures, if in the philosophical religious foundation of Western civilization is this idea handed to us, not just by the scriptures, but handed to us by, you know, the towering figures of Greek philosophy like Aristotle, who described women, woman as an incomplete man. Um, and then... If, if men, if boys grow up thinking that they're better than girls, if, yeah. they, if they grow up thinking that they have to control women, that a woman is there for their desire, we may not be religious. We may never go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple, but it's been, it's mm. in the water supply. It's been handed down to us. Yeah. And so we, we desire the woman, but if, if we can't have what we want, then something ancient gets triggered in the collective consciousness about us not being able to control that which we think we should yeah. be able yeah. to control. Because it is, 
it's when you were saying that it reminded me of the line from the door song um people are strange you know women seem wicked when you're unwanted and um i think that that's the toxicity born of male insecurity that is really codified by the culture here right it's um one of i went away after reading your your chapter on india's daughter and i watched india's daughter leslie adwin's incredible documentary and um you know in that documentary it's about the gang rape and murder of a beautiful woman named jyoti singh um in india and part of the documentary is interviewing some of the men who perpetuated this heinous crime against this young woman and the defense lawyers who supported those men and their justification continually is that we did what we thought was right this was just and it shows how the most pernicious form of control and ugliness can become codified by cultures and part and parcel of the way that boys are taught to value themselves compared to women bringing that back that's all a sham right like to me that's all a veil for male insecurity and being afraid of of one's own vulnerabilities and feelings the possibilities of rejection of losing control there's an another great moment in your book when you uh quote or you reference Eve Ensler's uh, Ensler's uh the vagina monologues the the writer of the vagina monologues um a scene from her life really where she met a Kosovo soldier who broke down in her arms and cried and uh expressed this kind of you know swarm of emotion why do men what i mean what does this cultural problem mean for men you know if this is a an attempt to get away from insecurity and to blame it all on women which i think it is what do men get out of trying to break away the narrow strictures that have been put on us um yeah well, it's a very good question yeah it's a very good question jack and and you know i'm i'm that that section with eve ensler where she yeah. meets that soldier in kosovo who i think it would be safe to say has taken part in the rape of bosnian women mm. during that war and there were rape camps set up and um and as you say he just collapsed in her arms and he became as she said this weeping wailing liquid man and she realized in a way that she was holding up centuries of male pain centuries of male suffering and so i think this goes to actually one of the hearts of the book because and then i'd like to kind of i think it's useful to move it from male female to masculine feminine mm mm because i think there's been a war against the feminine yeah for centuries and it's the feminine inside the masculine as well as it's women the feminine mm. it's it's a war against those values of softness and tenderness and vulnerability that are available to pretty well every human being mm. uh if not all human beings i mean unless you're born sociopathic or whatever but every child is born with the full range of emotions that are available to them but if you're a boy in many many cultures around the world you grow up um having those emotions shamed or bullied or um taken from you 
Yeah. And, you know, we, we hear it all the time. Um, you know, boy, don't be a girl. Don't be a sissy. Suck it up. Boys don't cry. Um, stop your whinging now. I have an example of this guy, uh, Tony Porter, a great educator in, in America, who was talking about when his children were little and whenever his little girl cried, he'd say, come and sit on daddy's, daddy's knee, daddy's got you. But then when his little boy cried, he'd say, stop your crying, mm. go to your room. Don't come out until you can behave like a man. And his boy was five years old. And so from a very early age, boys drink in this idea that it's unmanly to show emotion, that you have to be in control of your emotions mm. and that to not be in control of your emotions actually kind of equates you with a woman, equates you with someone who is weak. Um, and I think that that causes such horrendous damage to boys and men around the world, including this country in a big, big way, because this is a, at its worst, a very, very blokey bloke culture. And we have eight men a week killing themselves mm. in this country. And, you know, what is suicide? It's, it's in part death by loneliness. It's not being able to talk about all of the contradictions mm. of the heart, of all of the, the pain and anguish that attend to most human lives at one stage or another in, in, mm. in one's life. And mm. if you can't, if you are taught early that, that these emotions are wrong or they are misplaced in you because you are male, what happens then? when you grow up and you're in a relationship and I'm talking about heteronormative heterosexual relationships at the moment, but what happens if you're in a relationship with, with a woman and stuff happens as it invariably will things get complex and confusing and ambiguous mm. and you don't have the, there's no toolkit to reach into. There's no repertoire that you have to be able to, access the language of the heart because it was yeah. beaten, bullied, shamed out of you when you were young. Yeah. Yeah. And so we want to know. And so you have that, mm. you have that kind of sit with that concept for a while that men are taught that their emotions should be kept in tight check. Mm. Sit that side by side with the desire that a, a man has for a woman, for comfort, for, for safety, for intimacy, along with this idea that he should be in control yeah. of that woman. And you've got a big bloody problem. Mm, mm. I mean, and, that's what we're, and that's what we're seeing. That's beautifully put. And I, <laughs> it's amazing that you're saying that because I think it gets straight to the heart of, of the issue. I mean, that is the conflict. Um, I guess the question is, how do we get out of it? And when I say we, I mean, you know, men. Um, I do think that, as you said, if we look at the history of this, this is a problem created for and by men. And I too 
agree with you. I think that men need to step up, particularly at a time like this, and start shouldering a lot of the responsibility. Um, my favourite chapter, as you said before in this book, is a chapter called Augustine Confessions. And basically in that chapter, um, it's this wonderful self-reflection in which you really courageously go through and list mistakes that you have made in your relationships and in your life and reflect on how you have learned from them. And I loved the chapter. I thought it was incredibly brave and honest and funny and also, you know, very gracious. And I was wondering what courage did it take to write a chapter like that? Because if I just put this in context, we're at a time now when I think male leaders all over in Australia are really failing. And I mean, failing to model the right kind of leadership in response to what is going on. Women have been speaking up for a very long time and we're seeing women come forward with a lot of bravery, like Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, Chanel Contos, and men just not listening, let alone self-interrogating. What gave you the courage to kind of model this new kind of masculine, you know, behavior, this one, this model that listens, that learns, that self-interrogates, that's gentle, but also strong and vulnerable. I'd, I'd love to hear about that journey. Well, you know, courage, the word courage comes from mm. the French word, la coeur, la coeur, um, or the Latin, core, you know, the heart. Mm. And courage in some ways, there's lots of forms of courage. You know, you can jump out of a plane or you can climb K2 and mm. camp out on a rock ledge or you can, you know, shoot the rapids. Or you can speak one's mind your mind by revealing your heart mm. and that takes courage. And mm. I mean, I, I couldn't write this book without actually a ruthless self-interrogation. I mean, it would just be, it would just be, to me, it would have just been posturing and it would have felt sanctimonious, you know, unless I could actually own my own stuff because I'm, I'm part of the patriarchy. I grew up in the patriarchy. I, I learnt early, um, or I didn't learn, um, the right markers for manhood. You know, mm. at, at my school, which was a private boys' school, you know, we would get around in the school ground, you know, on a Monday morning and like, did you get with the girl and where did you get to and how far did you get? And, and, you know, and it was all of that kind of stuff. But also it was more than that. It was actually that the more girls you got to got, got with, the more of a man you felt. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you got to 18 and you could drive a car and you could, you know, you could vote and you could drink. But what else was there that actually, you know, I mean, I, I happened to have been lucky enough to um, had a bar mitzvah at the age of 13 where I had to sing in front of a packed synagogue in a language that I couldn't speak. And, <laughs> and so there was a rite of passage. Yeah. But I do think, or and I do think, that rites of passage are hugely important. I mean, one of the men who's doing extraordinary work in this area is Arna Rubenstein mm. because he understands that, that for a healthy society, you have to raise boys into becoming men mm. and they don't, you don't just become a man. I mean, for thousands of years, if you're going to become a man, there was some, you would, 
you know, you would leave your mother and cross the river with your father. You would go through some kind of ritual. It didn't just happen. Mm. Um, and that if you don't do that, you often end up still thinking you're a man, but you're actually masquerading as a man. Mm. You're still a boy. You're still stuck in boy psychology. And Arnold Rubin, I've listened to a number of his talks, and he kind of, talks about what is boy psychology he said well picture a boy in the playground you know at seven you know he can't control his emotions now he has temper tantrums he can't self-regulate and he wants his mother he wants his mom and then he says to the room full of parents you know does anyone know anyone like that And a lot of the women say yeah i married him (laughs) right And, and i think that for a, for a society to function healthily, they have to, you know, mm. we have to help them become men and work out what it means to become a man. So mm. for me, to get back to your question, I wanted to own my stuff. It wasn't enough and it is not enough for a man to say, in my view, I'm one of the good guys. Mm. I've never sexually assaulted or raped a woman. Well, I haven't either but I've objectified, I've thought that my uh, work, as I say in that chapter, Augustine Confessions, that my work was more important than my wife's work. My projects were more important, my needs were more important. Um, I didn't realise I was doing that. I should have because we had enough arguments about it. (laughs) Um, That, you know, there was a whole range of behaviours where you've got the tailwind. This is the thing as a man, especially as a white privileged man like myself, you've got the tailwind, as Tim Winton said, you know, so you have no idea what it's like to fly into a headwind. Yeah. And this is this whole concept of moral imagination empathy so you getting back to your question about where are the men where are the male leaders speaking out who are voicing their horror and their disgust at this behavior at, at the fact of you know of how rampant and deeply rooted in our society sexual violence is where are they And I think that, um, so one of the things there is because as as, um, Zach Seidler, the very well-known clinical psychologist and director of research at Movember said to me, when men look at these guys who are accused Mm. of this behaviour, they think to themselves, that could be me. And they go silent. And when women look at the woman who has been assaulted or raped or worse, they think that could be me and they become enraged. So you have this equal and opposite silence versus rage. And I think we men, no matter how good we think we are, we've all got our our biases, our unconscious biases. We've all got our blind spots. Mm. And we need to be actually taken through some kind of process where we have this experience 
of what women's lived realities are. Mm. To sit down with some of these male CEOs and say, you know, and say to them, well, have you ever feared for your life walking to your car at night? Mm. Have you ever lost your job because you're about to become a father? Um, have you ever been paid less than a woman doing the same work as you? Mm. Have mm. you ever been talked over and silenced because, you, you know, you're, you're a man? Mm. Like, put yourself in the other, sh- the other one's shoes. And so I, I, I felt like yeah. this book would have been um, incomplete. Well, no book is complete in the way you always think of the things you might have written or might have written better. Mm. But... Uh, I just would have been wrong, in my view, to have mm. not mm. done that. And when my publisher said, you know you, you need to write about yourself, my first rea- reaction was, really? <laughs> yeah. You want me, I can't just write about all the other men? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I couldn't, and they mm. were right. Mm. And so I did. Mm. And it's, I really commend you for it because it gives this book a realness that makes it very distinct from other books. And it's, um, it's what makes it stand out, I think, and makes it very relevant and brave. And just coming back to what you said about, about empathy, you know, I've been trying to work with several colleagues with, with young students and trying to think about how we do get men involved in this conversation. And I think the juxtaposition that you set up between justified rage and silence is very interesting and very, frightening in some ways because how do we bridge that and i've been thinking for a while that it's about two things too it is about empathy and lived experience we need men to understand that gender equality is right in and of itself not because they're fathers brothers sons or whatever but we have to at the same time allow ourselves to use lived experiences as a way into men because they're so out of out of out of um you know out of the way and at the same time it comes with that self-reflection too about what does it mean to be a man how are you actually going to step up? What are your values? What are your rights of passage? And getting young men to see that gender equality and respect and decency and how they treat others is part and parcel of that. And if we could, before moving into the contemporary moment a bit more, if we could just sit with that idea for a little bit, how do we actually deal with the silence? And how do men, how do good men who want to step up and go through this very scary kind of self-interrogation process first, because that is the precondition, I agree. How do they target the silence? How do they turn that silence into a kind of um, action-driven rage that actually starts to change things? Because that's something I'm struggling with now. I'm seeing a lot of young people very cautious, right? Sitting in rooms, don't want to say anything. You know, they, they're having conversations in their friendship groups. They have a gut feeling that what's going on is wrong and they actually want to do something, but they're locked, they're paralytic how do we get those young men really to start stepping up to feel able to speak? Because if they don't, um, nothing's going to really change. Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely the right question. And it's a difficult one to answer because there are women, understandably, who don't want to hear from men. Mm. Um, and in a way that there are, and there, and there are as many women, if not more, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but there are yeah. women who want men to shut up, but there's also women, the same women who want men to mm. speak up and speak loudly and be allies to, to women. Mm. Um, look, one of the things I've been thinking about kind of quite a bit in the last little while is 
we know that when you shame someone, you don't actually get the best outcome. And Jess Hill writes about shame very well in her mm. book, See What You Made Me Do, mm. about domestic violence in this country and coercive control. And what, what happens to men when they're shamed? And sometimes they, they shut down and isolate themselves. But other times they explode. They explode against others or they take their own life or both. And, you know, psychologists will tell you that shaming someone is just not going to get the results. So mm. we have to find a way, I believe, of helping men work out, young men mm. of all ages, what's in it for me? Mm. And how can I begin this conversation Mm. in a safe place where I can actually talk about yeah. all of these things that I find it so hard to talk about. And that is maybe partly the work you're doing mm. where you're going into schools and helping particularly boys because girls have their, they have each other in a much mm. more profound way than boys have each other in terms of navigating the uh, the territory of the heart. So mm. the work that you're doing, the work that Hunter Johnson's doing with the Man mm. Cave, the work that Tom Harkin's doing with Tomorrow Man, and Anna Rubenstein with Rites of Passage. How do we help? Let's start with boys and, and young men. How do we help them see that this is okay? Mm. That it's 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 fine if you want to cry it's fine if you're feeling vulnerable it's fine if you feel like you've 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 failed at something and to hear from older men who have failed yeah. to hear from older men or to see older men who can weep mm. with, not in a performative way but but with the losses that have taken mm. place in their life to mm. see that this is okay that yeah. to be in your vulnerability is actually to be a strength because mm. no relationship that is worth its salt can take place without the capacity to be vulnerable. Mm. Mm. So we have to learn that all over again or learn it for the first time, actually, yeah. in many instances. And I think that, like you say, a lot of boys and men, they want to do something. They want to be involved. They don't, they feel ashamed of what men have done to women, boys have done to girls. They don't want to be part of that. Mm. They, they don't want to be bystanders to heinous assaults and crimes. They don't know how to stand up mm. to the bully. Mm. Um, and, and they need support. And we need to support them. And there needs to be programs, I think, in every school in this country, which talks about what it means to become a man. Yeah. And it's not around those things that we think. And, and those messages are coming from yeah. parents, 
from coaches, football, mm. sporting sport coaches, from some teachers, from some schools, from media, from advertising, from our political masters, from the business world. Those messages are all around us. And of course, from pornography, which is just like, that's a whole podcast in itself, all 10. Yeah. Like, so, but, but I think if we can start young and have these, con- and have the kind of conversations that you and I are having and yeah. start normalising what good men do. You know, mm. when, when Asher Lernmoth, the prefect at Cranbrook, head prefect at Cranbrook, wrote that piece or gave that talk to Cranbrook and then it was republished in the Sydney Morning Herald, possibly the Melbourne Age as well. We need to hear more mm. from men like that, calling out his peers on this kind of behaviour. Mm. Like just saying this is unacceptable and he's the head prefect of, of a school that has been named and shamed for, you know, the things that were on that online petition started by Chanel Contos. We need to hear from, we need to start normalising good male behaviour, yeah. not, not to kind of paper over yeah. what's happening, yeah. but for people to see that what good male behaviour looks like and sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it all comes together. We all need to collectively hold up the mirror and do the self-interrogation process, right? And, it, I mean, the caution's useful, I think. And I think the caution is a consequence of, of good action. So the fact that people are being held accountable and are nervous um, about speaking up and are thinking about their actions and that sort of thing, that tells us that a line has been drawn in the sand in the cultural sand that says, hey, certain forms of behaviour are not okay. You need to move with the change or you're going to be left behind. Mm. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we make the most out of that clear line. And I think that thinking about ways to involve our young men that frame it so that they think about what it means for them as a man growing up, trying to grapple with toxic masculinity, which affects them just as much, um, is, is the way forward. And I'm really glad that you, you mentioned the schools and what's happening at Cranbrook because we're starting to see, you know, positive actions taken by school prefects across Australia in response to this. But what about the supply chain ideas? So we've, you know, a lot's been going on with Canberra over the last three weeks. We've seen the Brittany Higgins allegations. We've seen the allegations brought against the Attorney General, Christian Porter. And all of this stuff is extremely, extremely serious. What is the link David, do you think between what happens in our schools and then through to our colleges and then through to our parliaments, is it the same problem that expresses it differently across these contexts or is it a different problem altogether? I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts about the supply chain idea here because it it does seem that they're shared. Yeah. So imagine you go to an all boys school, like like you did, did, like I did, right? So five days a week, you're just with boys. Yeah. In fact, six days a week because Saturday is taken up with rugby or cricket or all of that sort of thing. Mm. So the only time you see a girl is maybe at a party on a Saturday night unless you've mm. got sisters. Mm. Mm. And so for 12 years, from the age of five to the age of 17 or 18, you don't have really girls as mates. They're not your friends. Mm. And you would always kind of, that boys club, that protective shield that comes around, given the choice between being nice to a girl and kind of winning approval from your mates, it's a no-brainer. You're going to want to go with the winning approval from your mates. 
But if you grew up with girls, if they were your classmates, if you sat in class with them, if you had to face them on a Monday yeah. uh, after having done something untoward on a Saturday, you might rethink how you behave. In fact, you may never have behaved like that because she's your mate and they're mm. all your mates. Mm. So those schools, not all of, not, I mean, I'm, this is generalisation, but they foster a macho, blokish, uh, boy's own culture. And then that becomes a kind of super spreader. Yeah through these super corridors that run from private schools, private boys' schools, into the university colleges, into the C-suites and the boardrooms and the merchant banks and the law firms mm. and into the halls of power in parliament. Mm. And so what, half the male members of the Morrison government went to private boys' schools. So they've grown up actually with enormous blind spots around this. They don't actually register, it seems, by and large, on the whole, as a government, what is going on here. They mm. say that they can, you know, they, they've said various things that they can see the rage and they are, but we know, I mean, they're so tone deaf, it's just, it's just breathtaking. And I think a lot of it is because they were, they, Look where they started. They yeah. started with just boys. So, uh, you know, I think it's actually, you know, there is a lot of entitlement. Mm. There's a lot of privilege um, that goes with these schools. And, and I think that, you know, when you are spending your the nursery of your life yeah. removed from half, the population who you then have to go to university with or end up in the workforce working for, mm. right, or working alongside, you just don't, again, you just don't have the kind of repertoire of skills. You don't have the emotional intelligence around that because you've just grown up with guys. I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of... It's and quite it's strange, a, isn't it? It's quite Victorian. It's yeah. actually really Victorian. I mean, I think, you know, one, of the, one school, private school in Sydney... Kings, I mean, they're still wearing uniforms from the 1830s. Mm, mm. You know, they're still walking around like little boy soldiers mm, from mm. the pre-Victorian era. Mm. Um, where does that, what, what possible relationship does that have to the 21st century? Yeah, and I guess this is the question because my own view is that if behaviour of this deeply inappropriate kind continues to be unveiled, the question of co-education certainly should be on the minds of, of headmasters. Certainly the onus is on headmasters of all boys schools, private schools to um, show us that they can raise decent and good men um, in their current setup as they've got it. But do you think that the schools can be reformed without going co-ed or do you think that a radical shift is needed here? That's really going to get rid of that old Victorian model and just say, the way we do things now is we're going to have an inclusive co-education well for me personally in a perfect world i would not have private boys schools okay uh, you know but i just don't think it's going to happen because most of them are owned or controlled or both by the church mm. the catholic church or in the case of sydney the anglican synod i mean they're not going to relinquish that i mean there are a couple of schools like 
Barker and St Andrews that were taken from single sex to co-educational. Um, but you've got a whole, you've got the old, you've got the parents, you've got the alumni, and you've got, in many cases on the board, you know, the representation from the church. And um, there will be fierce resistance because I think a lot of parents, they, they, they're paying whatever it is, $35,000 a year for their kid to get this head start, to get this privilege, to get, you know, to get onto that super highway into the law firms or medicine or whatever. Um, but I feel personally mm. that it's a really unhealthy environment for a lot of, mm. for a lot of boys. Mm. Um, I mean, I can't generalise and say for every boy, and that would be that would be silly because obviously some come out, many come out well adjusted and respectful, and uh, sensitive to the women in their lives. But there's something there's something in the mm. uh, in what incubates in that environment mm. through sport and through just only being exposed to boys. Yeah. But I think creates this thing of like, does this happen in Europe? I mm. mean, I, I know from my own family experience, taking my daughter, she went to school in Paris for nearly a year and she couldn't believe how boys and girls related to each other. Mm. And we, I know of families who've come to Australia and have witnessed the way in which boys just, are with boys and they get together on a Saturday night. And I'm sure you've seen this at university colleges. It's kind of all these girls have come from private girls schools and boys have come from private boys schools. And mm -hmm. the interaction sometimes is you, you need to be plied with a fair bit of alcohol to kind of loosen up and be able to talk to the other sex. Well, that's just crazy. Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, these are all, these are all huge questions, but, do you think we're at a turning point, David? Because you talked about before how it doesn't actually have to be this way. And it's, it's nowhere perfect. I mean, gender inequality, as you say in the book, I think you say that it's the most pressing human rights issue in the world. And I agree with that. Violence against women. Violence against women, yeah, and, and girls. Um, completely agree with that. Do you think that we are at a turning point? Because it seems to me that this language is around right now in the culture but it's a choice that we have to make. It's a choice that we have to make to say, no, we're actually going to change our ways here. And again, I'm speaking to men um, because men to me are the problem and can potentially be part of the solution. But what do you think about this moment right now? You wrote the book in 2019 or 2018 slash 2019. Me too then, this cultural reckoning now, is this different? Where do you think we're going to go from here? Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I'd like to say that this moment here in Australia represents uh, an absolute sea change, a, mm. a turning point. The rage is incandescent from when mm. you can feel it. Um, but at the same time, as some of those signs and banners at the Women's March on March 15 attested to, you know, how come I'm still holding up this sign? 50 years later, you know, women, are, women have been railing and protesting and agitating and screaming for, for something to be done about this for all of my lifetime. Mm. And, 
So, as against that, I would like to think, and I come back to this conversation, and I come back to the other kinds of conversations that we can have as men, that it's up to us, it's up to men. Yeah. We need to step up and yeah. we need to work out ways to be, as my beautiful younger daughter Hannah said, who helped me with my book, who was my main interlocutor <laughs> in this book when we were talking and arguing about the Me Too movement right in the beginning. And she just mm. said, Dad, just shut up and listen. And she said, and don't just listen to us because millions of women are screaming for men to listen. Don't just listen to us. Stand beside us. Yeah. Stand behind us. Mm. Be allies to us. Mm. And, you know, then... Let's do it. And, and what's in it for us? There's a lot that's in it for us. Mm, mm. You know, everything is in it for us. Yeah. Well, David, we're going to end it on that hopeful note because that's what I took away from your book. It, you know, I was a young man or I am a young man searching around for models of male leadership that I can emulate and trying to work with young people and grapple with these very difficult issues. And uh, your book really has been a shining light in that regard. I think that the model of honesty, gentle strength, vulnerability, and listening in this book, and it's a book that you read and you really feel that the author is listening <laughs> to, 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 to women and to himself and, you know, grappling with, with, his, own, with his own narrative. Um, the book's an incredible book and I really loved reading it. I recommend it to everyone, women, men, and the whole damn thing. And I hope that we have future conversations about this. It's been a wonderful, wonderful chat. And uh, I can't wait to read whatever features you end up coming out with this year, thinking about this issue. And um, thank you so much for the work that you have done and are doing. Well, thank you very much, Jack. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and well done you on all the work you're doing. Thank you, David. <laughs>